Welcome to another Love from the Hip. I'm spiritual hypnotherapist, master esthetician, and your host, Sakura Sutter. I created this show with the intention of empowering others to help and love themselves. Aside from weekly skin tips, you will hear me spotlight extraordinary souls from around the world who are making a difference by helping people in their own way. Together, we can all make a difference, and it starts with love, love from the hip. Many parts of our human anatomy are said to have originated back in the early Paleozoic era, some 540 to 350 million years ago. Recently, researchers have discovered the origin of sexual intercourse, and it is said to come from a group of unsightly, long-extinct fish some 385 million years ago in what is now Scotland. In 2014, John Long, professor of paleontology at Flinders University, found that internal fertilization and copulation appeared in ancient armored fish called placoderms. Placoderms happened to be the earliest vertebrate ancestors of us humans. Long discovered that microbrachius dicci, which belongs to the placoderm group, developed bony L-shaped genital limbs called claspers to transfer sperm to females. And females developed small paired bones to lock the male organs in place for mating. Microbrachius translates to little arms, and scientists have long been baffled by what the use of their bony paired arms were for until Long's discovery. This is the first time in vertebrate evolution in which males and females could be distinguished by their separate reproductive structures. Long believes these fossils symbolize the most primitive known vertebrate sexual organ ever found and demonstrate the first reproductive strategy known in fossil record. Christianity believes sex to have originated from the character and nature of God and is a reflection of how intimate and loving God is and that God created humans in his own image and gave it either a male or a female likeness so that the different bodies could come back together in an experience of oneness or as stated in the Bible, the two become one flesh. The first evidence of the various attitudes towards sex come from ancient texts of Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism. The Hindu ancient texts called the Vedas portray moral perspectives on sexuality, fertility, and marriage. The most publicly known sexual literature of India are the texts of the Kama Sutra. The ancient Sanskrit text encompasses more than just sexuality, but also eroticism and emotional fulfillment in life. In fact, a majority of the book is about love and desire, when it is good and bad, its triggers, and how to sustain it. Translated into various languages, Kama Sutra has become one of the most widely read secular texts in the world. In Tantra, another school of both Hindu and Buddhist philosophy, sex is not only a sacred duty, but also seen as a path to spiritual enlightenment. Tantric sex, while it doesn't include sex all the time, is described as a slow meditative process aiming to use the intense sexual energy created to achieve full enlightenment. It focuses on creating a deeper, more intimate connection with oneself, one's partner, and ultimately with the divine. It is also quite popular today and used to address sexual complications such as premature ejaculation. While sex in ancient times seemed to be viewed more as an art, science, and spiritual practice, it has taken on more of a taboo status in modern-day America. Perhaps the reason can be traced back to Victorian morality, where premarital sex lost one's status and sex became a moral obligation within marriage for the purpose of procreation. In addition, the constant regulation by the church and the state 
of our sex lives throughout history no doubt lended to its taboo, not to mention the shame that became attached to our sexual urges, desires, and dysfunctions by society and ourselves. Some examples include the impotence trials of 16th century France, where men had to prove their virility before witnesses in a court of law, while having their anatomy scrutinized for color, shape, and size. Or John Harvey Kellogg, who is said to have invented cornflakes to prevent Americans from masturbating by creating a bland breakfast food to curb horniness. Psychologists say that sex is taboo because this animalistic physical behavior threatens the very things we use to confront our own fear of mortality. Perhaps this is reflected in the French reference to an orgasm and its immediate aftermath known as la petite morte, or the little death, or that post-orgasmic state of unconsciousness. Orgasm, a word that is mostly taboo, while it doesn't have to be sexual, refers to a spiritual release and a short period of euphoria. In Tantra, an orgasm is a point when the awareness of your identity and your ego is dissolved and a higher state of consciousness is achieved. In fact, because of the compelling force behind orgasms, they have become used today as a powerful manifesting tool for positive beliefs. While we have only recently scientifically discovered the origin of sexual intercourse, sex and our relationship with it continues to change. After all, sex doesn't just involve our biological nature, but includes our psychological and spiritual essence as well. Our sexuality can manifest differently in each of us based on our genetic nature, our upbringing, our sexual experiences, and our beliefs. But it is also largely a byproduct of our relationship with ourselves. As the ancients have written before us, the deeper connection we have with ourselves, which is gained through being fully present in our bodies, the deeper the connection we can have with others and the outside world. Sex is the return to absolute oneness. Indian spiritual leader Osho said, Sex is the point where you are, and any movement is going to be from the point where you are. How we make love is how we create the life we lead, and vice versa. Today on Love from the Hip is my great pleasure to have certified sex therapist Jessa Zimmerman here with us. Jessa will share her sex tips and wisdom with all of you, including learning about the sexual avoidance cycle, how to make sex fun again and not feel like a chore, addressing different levels of sexual desire in a relationship, and more. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. The passing of our loved ones always proves to be very challenging, but can be met with ease when working with someone who can hold space, compassion, and especially someone who works across the veil. Allow Sakura Sutter, multidimensional channeler and intuitive medium, to be your spiritual guide with the other side. No matter if you choose to communicate with your transitioned loved ones to help you with the grieving process, or connect with spiritual, galactic, and other light beings to explore and dive in more on your spiritual path, Sakura can assist you. Not only does Sakura channel insightful messages, but she also incorporates her metaphysical tools to help you move through blocks and unprocessed emotions and feelings, providing you with a closure, relief, and new mindset to move forward. So don't hesitate to take your first step towards healing so you can start living your life once again. Remote sessions available. Contact Sakura at sakurasutter.com. That's S-A-K-U-R-A-S-U-T-T-E-R dot com.
Your skin is your body's largest organ. Care for it properly, starting with your face. Sakura Skin and Mind offers several clinical facial treatments to help stimulate collagen production, eliminate toxins, boost circulation, and deeply cleanse. See a new you in your mirror. Clinical facials range from $90 and up. Do your face a favor. Sakura Skin and Mind, erasing wrinkles one clinical facial at a time. Learn more sakuraskinandmind.com. S-A-K-U-R-A skinandmind.com. Taking care of your body's largest organ can be difficult, but not for Astera Skincare Mist. This topical skin spray supports your skin's own natural healing defenses. Astera Skincare Mist is a light misting spray, free of parabens, alcohol, toxins, and fragrance. This all-natural topical skin spray will take the woe out of your skincare worries without clogging your pores. Irritation, inflammation, redness, post-procedure sensitivities, no problem. With Astera Skincare Mist, you can continue about your day without the skin dismay. Acne, rosacea, psoriasis, sunburns, rashes, and fungus? Don't let these skin concerns inconvenience you. Instead, let Astera Skincare Mist allow you to be happy in the skin you're in. Available at Sakura Skin and Mind. Learn more at AsteraCare.com. That's E-S-T-H-E-R-A Care.com. Welcome back to Love from the Hip. I'm spiritual hypnotherapist, master esthetician, and your host, Sakura Sutter. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram and Facebook and to subscribe and share my podcast, Love from the Hip. That's H-Y-P, anywhere you can find podcasts. Today, I have the pleasure of having certified sex therapist, Jessa Zimmerman, here with us. Hey, Jessa, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. And now you're normally in Seattle, is that correct? Yes, yeah. <laughs> normally I am in Seattle most of the year. And currently you're away. Currently I am visiting uh, my dad's place in Albuquerque, New Mexico, looking out at the mountains. It's gorgeous. Beautiful. Well, Jessa, how long have you been a certified sex therapist and how did you end up becoming one? I got certified just about 10 years ago to the day, <laughs> actually. Um, I'd been doing the work a few years before that, but it takes a while to actually go through the process of certification. Sure. Um, and I ended up here because I had gone back to school to get my master's to become a therapist. I knew I wanted to focus on working with couples. And early in that training, a sex therapist was you know, teaching this weekend course, and she said that she considered sex therapy to be mostly grief and loss work. And that just hit me in that moment, the, the heartbreak and the suffering people can have when they are not intimately connecting with their partner. And I just, it was one of those, you know, lightning bolt moments. It's like, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> you felt it in your heart. Yeah, I yeah, really did. Absolutely. So how do you define sex? <laughs> it is, it's actually really hard to define sex <laughs> because it is not about what we do with body parts. You know, it's not like just, you know, penis and vagina sex, right? Um, so I, I've sort of come to see it as any consensual physical expression of our innate drives for pleasure and connection. You know, it's really about pleasure and connection, not about any goal, not about what we do with any particular body parts. Now, I love the analogy that you shared in your book about a playground. I was hoping that you could share that briefly with my listeners. Oh, yeah. It's one. Of, I mean, I say this to almost all my clients. Um, I think about sex like it's we're going to the playground because it is the outing that counts, not what we do when we get there. 
you know? So when you go to the playground, you don't have an agenda. It's not like all about going down the slide. It's more like, let's just go. And then let's see what we feel like doing once we get there and let's get inspired and stay as long as we want to stay. And no matter what happens, it's a win. Right. Because in my mind, the biggest thing to take away is you actually can't fail at sex. And when people are struggling, often they feel like they're failing. Right. You can't fail going down the slide. But yet you yeah, shouldn't have not going on the slide. You know, we just go <laughs> right. and sit on the bench. We still spend time together, right? It's yeah. Uh-huh. Exactly. So what are some questions we can ask ourselves in order to see how healthy our sex lives really are? I think it comes down to a few kinds of themes that I would say, I mean, unhealthy is a little bit of a strong word, but, you know, if we're avoiding sex, um, that's a big sign that something is going on, right? Mm -hmm. If we are neglecting our sex life and not putting any energy into it or bringing anything new, um, if we are worried about expectations and in our head, self-conscious, you know, thinking about what should be as opposed to what is, you know, not being able to be present. Um, certainly if there's anything that I sort of label hostility, and again, it's a little bit of a strong word, but if, you know, if a partner is criticizing the other or blaming or threatening or withholding, um, you know, sometimes, you know, I hate to say it, but sometimes couples end up in that space. Right. You know, that's a sign that it needs some attention. Well, their relationship needs some attention. Absolutely. And so to add to that, what are the biggest reasons for intimacy issues with couples? You know, if I had to, if I had to point my finger at the common denominator, it's expectations. It's the idea, we have some idea of how sex should go or what we should look like or who should do what (laughs) or what we should feel. And when we don't live up to those in whatever way, you know, know, all kinds of negative feelings, feeling broken, feeling inadequate, like that, you know, so many of these expectations are just wrong, frankly, you know, there's all these myths and these ideas, and that's just so not helpful. Or expecting our partner to feel the same way we do, right? Yeah, absolutely. Any of these ideas about should, you know, Uh is just like, so not helpful and gets couples, you know, trapped and feeling broken and bad and, you know, sometimes uh, fighting about it. Okay. Now, do most couples have a hard time admitting they have intimacy issues? <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting because, of course, the ones I talk to are coming to tell a stranger about their sexual concerns. Right. <laughs> so, so I'm only dealing with people who are admitting they have sexual struggles. But I, I certainly know that people come into therapy sometimes having struggled for sometimes decades Wow. before they have come to see me. Mm-hmm. So they have totally neglected to talk about this or it comes up twice a year. You know, it's this elephant in the room and they've, you know, there's been so much avoidance of it. So obviously it's hard to admit. And then most people are not talking to friends or, fam- you know, they've got no frame of reference. You're not talking to other people. Right. Um, lots of people tell me our friends all think we're the perfect couple. They don't know that we haven't had sex in a year and a half or whatever. So by the time the couples come to you, as in a lot of counselors have, have said, or shared that when they come to them for counseling, finally, after so many years, it's already too broken. How is it for you by the time they come to you decades later? You know, I don't quite see it the same way around sex. Yeah. So in terms of regular couples counseling, sometimes people come when it is too broken, somebody's sort of out the door, somebody has decided, you know, and it's kind of too late in that sense. But in terms, if it's just about the sexual relationship, 
I actually have a lot of hope for people. It doesn't matter if it's been decades because we just need to start from now, reframe this whole thing, get rid of those expectations, see what's possible now, open up that playground. Um, and I really do believe that people can create a relation, you know, a sexual relationship they can both be excited about. I mean, unless it's really a total erotic mis mismatch, right? Yeah. So um, they've got <laughs> sexual interests that just can't go in the same bedroom. Right. Okay. So do you see intimacy issues also with new couples as well? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and <laughs> yeah, it's not that, always yeah. just been decades. Sometimes, you know, sometimes I'm seeing people and they've only been together a few months. That's really on the early side, but maybe it's been a year or two and they're trying to, you know, they're either trying to get ahead of it. They, mm -hmm. they want to move forward and they want to make sure everything's as good as it can be, or they've been struggling from the beginning, or sometimes you know, what happens in a year or two together, things change. And so they get concerned about that. They don't understand that's normal. Right. So, and yeah. how does your work help couples that are preparing to get married? Well, you know, I think if people are looking at moving forward, it's going to help to learn to have really open communication about this. This is not always an easy conversation to have or a topic to, you know, a lot of us weren't raised to talk about sex, don't know how to have those conversations. So if we can start that early, and let's learn how to be honest and open and work together. The main thing is work together as a team towards something we can both be excited about. Right. That just sets them up for success. Okay. Now, aside from hormones, what are the most common reasons for women to lose their sexual desire? Well, I, I have, can I reframe that a little bit? Absolutely. <laughs> because <laughs> I think I think you're talking about something, you know, there's sort of two different ways of having sexual desire. One I call proactive, like sex is on my mind. I'm horny. I'm thinking about it. I'd like to have sex. Um, but we also can have reactive desire, which is I'm not thinking about sex, but if we got started and I got what I needed and my body responded, maybe I get turned on. Now I want sex. So most of the time when people are talking about losing desire, they are talking about the shift from proactive to reactive desire. They think they're supposed to feel mm -hmm. that and they think something's wrong when they don't. Okay. Um, but that being said, <laughs> stress, responsibilities in life, being with somebody for a long time, you know, feeling sort of uninspired, depression, medication. I mean, so many things, um, body image issues, uh, concerns around your, your, family, getting older. I mean, you know, almost anything going on in your life can become a barrier to your desire. And is it the same for men then, you would say? Yeah, basically. Yeah. Now, I mean, men are, go, oh, ahead. go ahead. No, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say men are, um, have a little bit of extra help from more testosterone usually. Okay. That, you know, that can be correlated with this proactive desire, but certainly men also can have more reactive desire. They can lose that, like just you know, we have this myth, I think, in our society that men always want sex or always ready to go. That puts a lot of pressure on them. There are plenty of people that don't feel that way. Yeah, I was going to say. So is there one gender that's more, you said, proactive or reactive as far as sex drives go than the other? Um, some people write about it as if this is more a female thing. Mm -hmm. Vagina owners or, you know, <laughs> the, um, are more likely to have more reactive desire. And I, maybe that's true generalizing, but that doesn't really apply to any particular couple. There are plenty of men who have more reactive desire and feel bad about it. There are plenty of couples that I see where the woman is a higher desire partner. Mm -hmm. And then they, you know, think what's wrong with my, I mean, they think something's wrong with that, right? Because yeah. of this, um, I don't know, what gets presented to us in the media, I think. 
Now, does do can people swing back and forth? Can they go from? Yeah, the important thing to understand about this is that you know, there's always a higher desire person and a lower desire person. Yeah, they're relative to each other. So you can go from being the higher desire to the lower. You can be a one in one relationship and a different one in another. There are times you have more proactive desire, times you have more reactive desire. It's not like it's an identity right, right that's fixed. It, uh-huh. it is a fluid thing. Yeah. And that brings me to my next question is how do you recommend couples handle those different levels of sexual desire? Yeah, I mean, that's a it's sort of a it's a big <laughs> it's a big <laughs> conversation. I could go on and on about that one. The the main thing is to try to avoid the traps. So first, you need to understand that this is normal. In every relationship, somebody wants sex more than the other person. And it, it just makes sense, right? Because why would two people want exactly the same amount? Right. So that is normal and nothing is broken. And the higher desire person, when it's a problem, is often taking this personally. Right. They're thinking, oh, I'm being rejected or it's not, I'm not important or I'm not, they don't find me attractive. And then it it becomes this whole negative thing, you know? And the lower desire person often feels like they're broken. What's wrong with me that I don't feel this desire? And there's all this pressure on me now. And, you know, and it kind of immobilizes them. Mm -hmm. So what really has to happen is the two people need to understand that nothing is broken. Nobody's wrong. How do we create enough space to go to the playground where the pressure is off? How do we move any barriers out of the way of the lower desire person's, you know, desire? And then can we make more space for reactive desire? That's the biggest thing is to understand we got to go in there and create these opportunities and see if it happens, but without, you know, it's not a failure if it doesn't. Yeah, There's no the way pressure. 100% of the time reactive desire shows up, right? <laughs> yeah, without all that pressure. Right. So what do you suggest then? Do you, do you suggest masturbation for someone that has a higher sex drive in the relationship or even for the yeah. person that has a lower sex drive to just stimulate themselves? Yeah, I mean, masturbation's great, right? The, the only problem, <laughs> the only problem I... I see with it is if it starts to be I'm doing this instead of bringing any of my sexual energy to my partner right like we don't want it to be an avoidance strategy like I'm just going to deal with it myself and not you know not even pay attention to our sex life but certainly it can be a great way for somebody with higher desire to get more you know pleasure and orgasm that they might want right Right. and yes for somebody with lower desire it can kind of get the the gears going a little bit you know it's something people can do together a little bit Mm -hmm. okay and so you mentioned it a little bit, the avoidance. So what is the sexual avoidance cycle? So what I, what I will see with couples, and this is why I say expectations, it's the root of, root of all evil, the root of the problems. Um, when we have sexual encounters that feel like they didn't meet expectations, like something has gone wrong, we're going to have negative feelings about that, right? At the very least, disappointment, but maybe fear, um, inadequacy, you know, all this worry about what it means about me or about my relationship, right? It's you start to have all this negative stuff go on. It is human nature to avoid things that make us feel like that, right? We do not go like skipping off to the bedroom when I might come out feeling like I let you down. Right. So, right. One or both people will start to avoid sex because they don't want to encounter those negative feelings. But the problem is by avoiding sex, you know, we avoid things. It doesn't get better. Right. Uh, the pressure gets higher. There's pressure on the sex life in general, like we're not having sex and we should, my partner wants it, but we're not doing it. But there's also more pressure on the sex people have. You know, if you're having sex all the time and one time doesn't go so well, no big deal. 
But if you're having sex every few months or something, there's all this pressure that this time go well. Mm. But like, you know, how can it with that much pressure, right? So you're more likely to have another experience that doesn't meet your expectations, which exacerbates this whole cycle, right? So I see this in people all the time. So in order to get off that (laughs) merry-go-round, get rid of the expectations, but also you're saying is to try to instigate sex more frequently. Well, not sex exactly. (laughs) The opportunity to be sexual. Okay. Right? Because this is the difference between scheduling sex Mm -hmm. and scheduling time to be physically intimate. And to me, those are night and day, right? Because scheduling sex, oh, this specific thing is supposed to happen. (laughs) And I may or may not want that, right? Right. As opposed to, so, so we need to shift the expectations, change that whole paradigm to be like the playground, and then start to be physically intimate without any pressure without any agenda or outcome in mind, right? Just stop avoiding and, ta- and talking about it, right? Working together. That's what brings the pressure down. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So how much does the environment also play a role in that intimacy? You mean the environment of like the bedroom or yes, something? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, for some people a lot and for some people not at all. <laughs> so <laughs> so it's, it's, you know, it's always about any two people really looking at what they need. Mm. You know, how does their body work? How does their mind work? How does their heart work? What do they need in the environment? And can they talk about that together and work together to craft something that supports both of them? Yeah. I mean, I really am pretty hopeful that any two people can come up with some combination of their need, you know, that they really can come up with something that's mutually satisfying. And they have a meeting point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's yeah. I th- it's my little Venn diagram, you know, it's like there's my stuff, there's your stuff. Mostly there's some overlap that we can work with. Okay. And then with that environment, what about people who have small children? What do you recommend they <laughs> yeah. do? Yeah, I mean that's it's a tough one. First of all, get a lock on your bedroom door. Uh-huh. Um, the sock doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, it's surprising to me how many people don't have a lock. Right. It's like how in the world are you gonna relax <laughs> if somebody can walk in and at any moment? Uh-huh. Um I mean, unless that's hot to you, you know, but, you know, when you, when the phase of life with young kids, people are busy, people have, you know, there's not enough time, there's not enough energy, you've kind of got to milk the moments you have for the, you know, the most you can, and really try to create some time for the two of you as a couple, even with those demands, Um, you know, as they get older, it should get easier. But in that time, specifically, it takes extra investment, I think. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks for sharing that. And with that, we're going to take a quick break, but stay tuned for the weekly skinny up next and more love from the hip. On this weekly skinny, I would like to talk about the safety of nail dryers, specifically ones which use UV light to cure gel nail polish. UV nail dryers are used to help the tiny molecules called oligomers in gel nail polish to cure, resulting in shiny, durable, and longer lasting nail polish. A study was recently conducted at the University of California at San Diego and the University of Pittsburgh to learn more about the potential UV harm from these dryers. The study concluded that human cells which were exposed to UV light from nail dryers did indeed suffer. With just 20 minutes of exposure, 20 to 30 percent of the cells died. And after three consecutive 20-minute exposures, 65 to 70 percent of the cells died. Not to mention, the UV radiation emitted from nail dryers has shown to be stronger than the sun. Currently, the FDA considers nail dryers to be at a low risk of causing cancer because of a lack of substantial evidence. Dermatologists, however, argue that the recent findings are grounds for potential skin cancer causing DNA damage. 
And that, this radical damage, can cause some of the most common skin cancers like basal cell and squamous cell carcinoma, as well as the deadliest type of skin cancer, melanoma. It is no surprise, however, that the UV nail lamps cause UV damage when tanning beds themselves have already proven to do so. Included with the potential risk for skin cancer is also premature aging. The exposure to this UV radiation increases pigmentation or sunspots and decreases skin laxity, giving way to more wrinkles. While frequency of using these UV nail lamps will determine one's risk of skin cancer and skin damage, not getting gel manicures will decrease one's risk altogether. Of course, for many women, this is not their first option. So, dermatologists also suggest getting nails done infrequently, just a couple times a year instead of every two weeks. They also recommend using a water-resistant broad-spectrum SPF 50 and applying it at least 20 minutes before exposure to the lamp. This, however, can prove to be difficult since application of the sunscreen must be timed around the nail tech's process. Hence why UV protective fingerless gloves are preferred. Using UV fingerless gloves and applying sunscreen, however, will not protect one from the risks of UV exposure underneath the nail, which can result in a very rare, often undiagnosed and hard to treat cancer. Another alternative to having longer lasting nail polish without the risk of UV damage is dipping the nails. This service uses colored acrylic polymer-based powder and an activator in lieu of a UV light to cure it. The only precaution with getting dip nails is making sure that the nail tech is not allowing other clients to dip their nails into the same container of powder, which can spread germs and bacteria. Welcome back to Love from the Hip. I'm spiritual hypnotherapist, master esthetician, and your host, Sakura Sutter. If you're just tuning in, I am having a discussion with certified sex therapist, Jessa Zimmerman. And be sure to pick up a copy of her book, Sex Without Stress. So, Jessa, can we talk about orgasms? Sure. Okay. (laughs) So what are the most common reasons for issues with that? Um... Well, I think there's there's two different ways to think about that is issues having any orgasm at all, even by yourself. And then there's sharing an orgasm with a partner. Okay. Um, so the most common reasons are probably going to be medication related or health reasons, things like that. If you, you know, or um, just not knowing yet what you respond to. Mm. So for some, you know, in fact, a lot of sex therapists, we stop using the word anorgasmic, which means without orgasm. Sure. We talk about pre-orgasmic, which you just haven't discovered your orgasm yet. Okay. Um, so the, I- the ability to give yourself the permission and explore your body and your pleasure and, you know, overcome whatever religious or cultural training you might've had around that. Right. right, right. Um, orgasms with a partner, I think. There are two main things that can happen. It can be hard to relax enough and feel perhaps vulnerable enough to let go in front of somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, and what can happen is I'm so worried about you and how you're doing that I'm not really focused on my own pleasure. Right. <laughs> so, you know, like I'm not going to give myself permission to take up that space, um, you know, and I'm, I'm going to be way more over on your side of the court worrying about whether, you know, my partner is having a good time. What do you recommend doing for that? 
uh, stop that. No, <laughs> I mean, really, it's, it's, we'll get to this a little bit later in the show. It's, it's so important to give yourself permission and this, take the space mm-hmm. to enjoy things and to take pleasure and to let it be about you. Um, sex is, you're, you're a way more compelling partner if you're having a good time. Now, what about the opposite of that? What about the partner that only seeks out their orgasm and doesn't care about the other person? You know, I don't see that very often. I, I partly because I'm working with couples, right? And they're right. committed. And so, you know, this somebody like that makes me think of someone who's maybe single and going from person to person to person. Right? Makes sense. Um, yeah, this needs to be balanced with being given, you know, a, a good sexual encounter is going to be mutually fulfilling, right? And so there's a flow between my pleasure and your pleasure. And we want to be sharing both of those. Right, exactly. Now, aside from vulnerability, how much of orgasms is does presence play a part? Well, a lot, because <laughs> if you're not, you know, if you're up in your head, you're not connected to your body sensations, right? Mm-hmm. Like to being there with what is happening in your body, well, and in your heart and in your mind all together uh, is part of what allows you to sort of receive those sensations to respond to. Now, do you also recommend Tantra? Is that something you've worked with before with your clients? I have, I don't have a lot of experience with it myself. I did a weekend training, but I have referred people to Tantra because mm-hmm. um, it really can help with mindfulness, with presence, and with shifting expectations too. Like, what is this whole thing about? Right, exactly. So what are some losses we experience in life which can affect our sex life? Well... I mean, any loss that we have in general, we like we lose a parent or a friend or a job, right. <laughs> or, you know, our income. I mean, any of those things can be devastating, right? And we're grieving. Um, that can make a big difference and, you know, really dampen our interest in sex. We've got to get through that morning or that the shock of what's happened and, the you know, the pain of that to some degree before mm-hmm. we're kind of back to living again. But the, but there are also losses within sex that I think come up even more. (laughs) And again, it's like any change is a loss. So as we get older and our body functions a little differently, you know, Mm -hmm. we used to be have all this proactive desire and now we don't, that's a loss. Our partner used to, and now they don't, that's a loss. My erection is not as um, consistent. That's a loss, right? I'm not lubricating as much in menopause. That's a loss. All of these, the changes that we experience over a lifetime Again, those kind of lead to some negative feelings. It's Mm -hmm. hard to go into something where you're confronting this change and this loss, right? So sometimes that's a big obstacle for people, can be a big driver of that avoidance cycle. And adding to our feeling of being inadequate, right? Yeah, potentially. Or even if even if we sort of understand it, it it is a loss. Right. You know, and that it just takes some time to process that. Okay. So what are your top 10 sex tips? (laughs) <laughs> my top 10 sex tips, none of which involve a trapeze, by the way. Oh, darn it. You yeah, know, I know, I know. It's not, this is not what you find in Cosmo. Um, <laughs> well, the first one is to prioritize it. Mm. You know, sex, I think we have this idea that sex happens really natural. It should just come naturally. It shouldn't take any work. Um, maybe we had that experience early in our relationship. Couldn't wait to, you know, couldn't keep your hands off each other. I right? couldn't wait. It's a shift over time to mm-hmm. make the space for it and to prioritize it. And it's not some bummer like, oh my gosh, we've got to schedule it. It's like we plan dates, we plan vacations, you know, we plan for things that are important. Sure. And so that needs to happen with intimacy too. Um, 
The second one is to access desire, because one of the things I work the most with is a sense of having sex out of obligation, as opposed to really connecting to your desire or figuring out what could evoke that desire in you. Mm -hmm. And again, part of it's reactive desire, but like, don't just go through the motions, get it done, check the box, got to do this because my partner wants it. Right. Um, we yeah. really want to connect with how can this be meaningful and engaging for me? Mm -hmm. Right. Even if that's not about sexual pleasure, maybe it's about emotional connection or the back scratch or the cuddle after. Uh, okay. But there needs to be something in it. Um, and then communication, you know, that's that's a big one. You know, communicating with your partner about sex in general, mm -hmm. like outside of the bedroom, about how you feel about it and what you want and how you'd like it to improve. But also communication within sex about what you would like. I mean, I think we're each responsible for our own pleasure and we need to tell our partner what we need from them to be pleasing, right? So being able to talk about what you would like in the moment and what you don't want. They can't um, read our minds? Really... No, they cannot. <laughs> <laughs> or your body. You know, so many people think, well, if they were just paying attention or attuned, but that's not their job, right? Right. It is a gift to tell somebody what you need. Mm, um, like it's not that. criticism. It is really a gift. Um and then there's, you know, we're sort of back to the playground idea, but enjoying the journey. It's not about a destination. Any sort of goal orientation, even if you reach the goal, kind of means you're not paying as much attention to the journey part of it. It's mm -hmm. like eyes focused on like the orgasm at the end or something, right? <laughs> as opposed to really enjoy every bit of that process. Right. They're all, I mean, maybe orgasm's your favorite or that's really fun, but it doesn't mean everything else isn't also wonderful, you know? Um. Being present is definitely one because if you're in your head worried about either the chores or the tasks or the kids or what do I look like or, you know, mm -hmm. am I letting my partner down, whatever, that's going to take away from your experience for sure. Um, being selfish. And so here we're back to how important it is to be able to let sex be about you and to take up the space to have pleasure and to let that be. Mm -hmm. um, it is not, sex is just not fulfilling with somebody who's going through the motions. Even if it's like all about me, my partner, I don't want anything. It's just about you. That's going to get old right. for the partner who's getting pleased. Like <laughs> we want to participate in our partner's pleasure. We need to give each other that, you know, that experience. And then that is balanced by being giving. Like we mm -hmm. want to give our partner the space to be selfish, right? And participate in their pleasure. Mm -hmm. um, then there's being seen, you know, this is not a place for pretense or pretending or acting as if, or what, what you know, trying to be the person you want me to be, but like just really being authentically yourself in that moment. Um, exploring eroticism. Eroticism is like our, our erotic fingerprint. Everybody has things that turn them on um, and nothing is off limits. So trying to un be curious about each other's erotic maps and what is it that's really hot to you? And what's hot to me? And trying to be welcoming of that, not threatened or right. critical, right? Make that a very safe space. Talk about that. None of it means you have to do any of it right away. Mm -hmm. But then you're kind of looking again for that overlap of where could we bring in some of that erotic energy into what we are doing or imagining together, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and then the 10th one is just overcoming obstacles. Like instead of going into the avoidance cycle or something, if we're having any sort of struggle or concern or negative feeling or whatever, you know, be willing to talk about that, but then be willing to address it. Like, let's not just leave this big boulder in the middle of the road. Let's try to move it. I love that. Now, I know you said there were no trampolines, but I feel like you could put that into number nine, 
and exploring yeah, eroticism. Yeah, that is where you could get, you're right, you could get some, <laughs> you know, sex toys or gear, you know, but the, not everybody's eroticism is like kinky or wild. It could just be like candles, right? And right. romance, like it's whatever it is, like what really works for me, what really works for you, what's the thing that really opens up our arousal. Now, which step do you find is the hardest for most people? <laughs> oh, boy. Um, that's really hard. I it, can I have more than one? <laughs> <laughs> of course, yes, you may. I think I think enjoying the journey. So at least so many of the people that I see in therapy have become there really is a goal about things, and they think they're failing. It's pass fail. Okay. So that reframe really helps. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people have trouble being selfish. Mm-hmm. They really have trouble asking for what they want and, and taking the space to receive that. Um, and a lot of people struggle with accessing desire. They haven't felt that proactive desire. So they're just doing it to because they should or because they care about their spouse. And they haven't figured out yet, like, wait, how I can actually make this engaging for me in some way, even if it's different than it used to be. Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks for sharing those. And yeah. with that, we're going to take another quick break. But everyone stick around for more Love from the Hip. A health crisis is one of the most challenging situations we will experience in our lifetime. It leaves us frightened, confused, and asking, why did this happen to me? Transformational coach Rory Reich experienced his healing crisis when the life he had so carefully constructed came crumbling down around him. The universe had offered him a challenge. He chose to accept it and to rediscover who he was before it was too late. In his book, Transform Yourself Through Disease, Rory shares his personal journey alongside eight practical steps to help those who are stuck realize their self-impairing beliefs and discover ways of transforming them so they can reclaim their health and create the life of their dreams. Don't let your health crisis define you. Take the next step and transform yourself today. For a free life coaching consultation, contact Rory at RoryReich.com. That's R-O-R-Y-R-E-I-C-H.com. Microneedling is a revolutionary treatment that can help reduce the appearance of acne scars, fine lines, pigmentation, wrinkles, even improve the appearance of stretch marks by stimulating collagen and elastin. Sakura Skin and Mind specializes in this procedure that jumpstarts your body's natural healing process. Sakura Skin and Mind believes in not only keeping the skin up to date with the latest trends in the skincare industry, but also keeping the skin beautiful, fast, pretty, painless, and affordable. Find out more at sakuraskinandmind.com. S-A-K-U-R-A skinandmind.com. If you're planning on building a home or a major landscaping project, you'll want the team of Stone Resources on your side. Safely, effectively, and correctly working with our unique terrain requires local knowledge and environmental care. For 21 years, Stone Resources has been making sure their customers' biggest investment is on solid ground. Trust your next earth-moving project to Stone Resources. Call 425 754-6792. That's 425-754-6792. Stone Resources. We make the earth move. And remember, if you need dirt or have dirt to get rid of, you can call on us. 425-754-6792. Welcome back to Love from the Hip. I'm spiritual hypnotherapist, master esthetician, and your host, Sakura Sutter. If you're just joining us, I have certified sex therapist Jessa Zimmerman here with us. 
So, Jesso, you kindly shared your 10 sex tips with us before the break. And one of them was communication. And I'm just curious, how much of our communication about sex comes from the way we were raised? I think a lot of it in in sort of two different ways. Um, A lot of people have been raised and learned not to ask for what they need and want in general, not just about sex, (laughs) right? Like it's been hard for them to have it be about them and to ask for things. And so many people struggle to prioritize their own needs or to advocate for those. So that doesn't, and then it's even much harder in the, in the arena of sex, you know? So for, in a lot of families, lots of families, sex was just not talked about. Yes. And so the kids are left to sort of figure it out. (laughs) Well, figure it out, but then, you know, either think, oh, it's taboo. It must be bad. Or no, it's actually really exciting. You know, it's like people go different directions, but they're not necessarily equipped to just have open matter of fact, direct conversations. And then depending on the cultural or the religious training, there could be really explicit messages about sex, right? Sure. Not just that it isn't talked about, but like it's shameful or scary or dangerous or mm-hmm. sinful. Now, do you recommend we talk about sex with our kids? I do. I do. And I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not an expert at like every developmental age or whatever, but starting by calling body parts their real names, you mm-hmm. know, as kids start to learn what their knee is, they can learn what their vulva is. Um, not a big deal. And answering their questions honestly and matter of factly. And I think the biggest thing is to do some research and get some support if that's hard for you. Right. Like if you weren't raised talking about sex, it might be really intimidating. Like, what am I going to say to my kids when they ask where babies come from? There are resources for this. Mm-hmm. And I would suggest people kind of do that work and kind of tackle their own discomfort. So they're prepared once the kids ask the question. Now, did your parents raise you talking about sex? Yeah, they did. They did. I came from a very sex positive and open household. Um, but that's a rarity. Yeah, at least it was. Yeah. yeah. And look at you now. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> so I wanted to ask, how has the pandemic impacted sexual relationships in couples? <laughs> it's interesting because I literally was just interviewed in the Wall Street Journal right last week about this. Awesome. Um, so first, there is a, there was just a lot of stress with the pandemic in general, right? If people were sick, if they have lost people, if they have lost jobs, I mean, they, you know, I don't wanna, that level of societal stress is huge. Then we're talking about potentially being in lockdown 24 seven with your partner. Now, some relationships thrived with that, right. but lots of them didn't, you know, there went our social networks. If, you know, we're an extrovert and we see one person, Uh, We didn't get to exercise, whatever, right? We didn't get to go out and have experiences and come back with something new. Um, And for for a lot of people, this pandemic time has been this sort of, I call it like vicinity time. It wasn't quality together time, but it also wasn't ever quality alone time. Right. So we're just like killing time near each other. And it's like, why? We should be connected. We're together all the time. Well, no, but we didn't ever really like face each other and connect, you Mm -hmm. know? Yeah. Yeah. So what would, what would you say is the first thing that these couples should do in order to bring it back? Um, Well, now that it's sort of over, you know, to get out and get something going in your life that you could be excited about again, right? Any sort of joy or passion is helpful having separate experiences or the ability to pursue, pursue something that really lights you up and then bring that back together. And then I, I, you know, I think we just have to go back to the idea of prioritizing time where we really are focused on each other. We're not just Netflix and chill, right? We're really going to 
have a conversation or we're going to be physically intimate or we're going to go on some adventure. Absolutely. So tell me more about your book, Sex Without Stress. What is it about and who is it for? Well, I wrote, I wrote it in 2018 for all those couples that I saw trapped in the sexual avoidance cycle, which was mm-hmm. basically everybody I work with. Yeah. So it really is about changing the whole paradigm about sex. So we understand it's about the playground. We understand we're going to practice those 10 sex tips, which really are kind of competencies, right? And we're going to open up the dialogue and get people working on this together as a team, as opposed to feeling like opponents. Um with real structured activities to do to try to implement this stuff in their life. It's really kind of a guidebook to overcome, you know, the disappointment, the avoidance and the pressure. So it's really for any couple who feels like their sex life is stressful and they're having negative feelings about it. They're disappointed. They're avoiding it. Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. Now tell us more about your desire spa online course that you have. Yeah, so I took the book and I turned it into a course. Um, and at this point in time, it's for women specifically who have lower desire. So they're struggling, they're going through the motions, they're doing it out of obligation, they're not connected to desire for themselves. They wish they wanted sex, right? Yeah. But they're really worried about their relationship. They feel guilty. Most women, you know, most people who are lower desire partners feel guilty that their partner's not getting what they need. So the course is now totally online where people work through it at their own pace through basically all that content in the book, but delivered in video with exercises and support. I'm curious what the age range is of the women that come online for that. Well, I don't know specifically who's online for the course because I see the enrollments, but I don't see the people. Uh, But I can tell you that my therapy practice, I have worked with people from 21 to 80. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, really, it's just, you know, sexual struggles are inevitable. Uh, doesn't nothing says they're not going to start till you're 60. Like uh-huh. it's across the entire lifespan for people. Um, so, yeah, it can't be too young or too old. And out of curiosity, what is the most common sex issue for someone in their 80s? Well, a big one at that point is there's typically pretty dramatic, not dramatic, but, you know, there are changes in sexual functioning. Mm-hmm. And so if they have gone their life thinking that sex equated to like intercourse, if it's a heterosexual couple, and now that is much less possible you know, now all of a sudden, what do we do? We have to really shake up that paradigm, right? Like, no, it doesn't have to be (laughs) penis and vagina. There's, you know, I mean, I remember this couple just were saying like, wow, it can be something else. Like they just (laughs) didn't know. All they really needed was that permission. I love that. Right. So tell us more also about your podcast. Well, I was did my podcast for about four and a half years. It's called Better Sex. It's actually on hiatus right now, but I have like, I don't know, 225 episodes recorded and up you know, on iTunes or wherever podcasts are. And I, some of them I did did myself, what I call my soapbox episodes, (laughs) but lots of them were interviewing different experts and all, I mean, the variety of topics is huge. You can find almost anything. And some of them were were interviewing couples or people who had overcome sexual issues. It was harder to find those guests, honestly. I love those conversations, but I I would always do those anonymously, but that's a lot to ask someone to come on and talk about their Exactly. That's being very vulnerable. So what do you love most about being a sex therapist and a couples counselor? That I can really help. I can really help. You know, it's especially in the sex therapy arena. Like I was saying, sometimes couples counseling, it can be too late. Mm -hmm. Um, But with sex, it's it's just kind of miraculous what I can see happen sometimes with the with the paradigm shift and the permission and some tools and direction for how to implement some of these ideas. 
and people are just like, holy cow, it's, you know, it's changed our lives. That's awesome. That's just yeah. understanding the language of sex, right? Well, the language of it and the, and that truly you can't fail, mm -hmm. you know, getting away from these expectations that we've all been taught. Yeah. So how can my listeners learn more about you? Well, my sex therapy website is jessazimmerman.com. Uh, but for anybody out of Washington, you'd want to go to intimacywithease.com. That's where some of my other resources are available. And your amazing quizzes that are there, too. <laughs> yes, so quizzes. We've got all kinds of resources there that people can sign up for. That's awesome. Well, thanks again for being here today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. And thank you to Eric, my amazing producer, you the listener, KKNW, KBKW, and Cape Town Zone Radio. You can find me at sakurasutter.com. And tune in next Wednesday for another episode of Love from the Hip presents the Conscious Coaching Hour. Stay kind out there, stay true to you, and don't forget, make self-love contagious. Go ahead, I dare ya.